Well, I'm here once again, and much to my great pleasure, with Massimo Pugliucci. That's because you're a sucker uh, for punishment. <laughs> that's right. Um, although, Massimo, today's a, this is a special episode because I gather that we are inaugurating a new channel for blogging heads, which is going to be called Meaning of Life TV. That's right. Um, and, and, yeah, and I guess it's a revival of a site that Robert Wright used to have. Uh, upon which um, such luminaries as Daniel Dennett once appeared. And so uh, hey. you and I are the next generation. It's like Star Trek. We're the next generation of Meaning of Life TV. We have something to look up for. To, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so today, Massimo, we uh, thought we would talk a little bit about uh, about ethics um, in light of the uh, the new channel. Right. Uh, oh, I forgot to do introductions. So, um, Massimo, why, <laughs> yeah, who, who are I got we so anyway? Excited. I got so excited, I forgot to do introductions. Massimo, why don't you introduce yourself and then I'll do the same. Okay, I'm Massimo Pigliucci. I am a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. And I'm Dan Kaufman. I am a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, so we, we decided that we were going to talk about uh, morals today, about ethics, because in, in part, um, because it's something, an issue that's come up a lot on your Scientia Salon webzine, despite the fact that it's uh, a webzine devoted to the intersection of science and philosophy, the, right. the question of morality comes up a lot. And um, also, uh, we thought it would be uh, make sense, given the new focus of the new channel for blogging heads. Right. Specifically, we were going to talk about um, the question, the, the subject of moral realism and the various problems and questions that surround it. Um, and so I think in, in this, with respect to this, it's probably a good idea to start uh, maybe with some substantial uh, definition and disambiguation. Right. Because there's a, there's a lot of different positions on this map right. um, that we should clarify. So how would you characterize moral realism, anti-realism, as opposed to, let's say, moral objectivism or moral subjectivism or moral relativism? How, how do you see the various positions on the position map? Right. Um, I mean, th this is a complex territory. And, of course, feel free to jump in, in fact, and, and, and sort of correct me uh, whenever whenever you feel that I, uh, I'm going in the wrong direction. But at a very basic uh, level, I think, first of all, we need to make a distinction, which you just implicitly made, between realism or anti-realism and objectivism objectivism or, or non-objectivism um, because too many people seem to think that one can have objective notions only about things that are ontologically real in a substantive sense um, right. and that's not true uh, you know I can for instance uh, you don't need to be a realist about mathematics you don't need to be thinking of mathematical objects as you know in a platonic sense to make very objective uh, uh, claims about um, you know, mathematical structures. Uh, so, so the, the idea that one that the, the, the two positions that you know there is no way to be objective in uh, ethics, let's say in this particular case, unless you're a realist, I think is entirely misguided. And so we should sort of keep the two things separate. Um, in terms of realism versus anti-realism, and, and then of course there is another very weird um, position lately that it's referred to as quasi-realism. You know, I'm talking about Simon Blackburn, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, and maybe we can get there later. I actually have fuzzy understanding of what that even means. But um, realism, in terms of just realism and anti-realism, I suppose the basic idea is uh, just like in other fields, uh, there is there's a realism and anti-realism in, in uh, the philosophy of science. There is uh, realism and anti-realism, as I just mentioned, in the philosophy of mathematics. But essentially, a realist makes a, uh, a some kind of strong uh, ontological claim, saying that you know, in the case of ethics, 
there are there is such a thing as moral facts and moral truth that are in a sense mind independent that is that that uh, you know we should all agree on not just because uh, these are objective truths of some sort but also because they are in a sense out there and of course this sense of out there needs to be cashed in it's not it's not that one can point a telescope and discover a moral truth uh, um, but but that I think is the basic idea just like again in in mathematics where uh, you know uh, mathematical realists say that mathematical structures are real in a mind independent sense although they don't say and here is a telescope and there's the number four uh, kind of thing. Uh, an anti-realist, of course, is somebody who denies that. Is somebody who says, "No, there is no, uh, there is no ontological, uh, ontologically substantive uh, entity to, or, or, or truth out there to be found about ethics or mathematics or whatever." Um, and that doesn't mean, of course, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that you're then, uh, as an anti-realist, committed to uh, some kind of uh, of uh, relativism uh, or uh, skepticism or agnosticism about um, ethics or, or, or mathematics. It, it just means that you don't think that there is uh, any any such a thing as an objective as, as a moral truth out out there, as 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 you as you say. So you think that that's a basic um, understanding of things. What what would you add? It's I don't know that I would add. It's 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 really the. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, as I was listening to you talk, my stomach sank a little bit as I started realizing <laughs> how hard how hard it is. Um, because look, I think that the the way that you describe realism with respect to uh, in other areas um, is easier kind of to see, right? So I understand what we mean by metaphysical realism. Let's say with regard to physical objects, right? So it's right. the view that the chair exists independently of anyone's perception of it right so that you know, what, what hume called continued and distinct existence right so that yeah. when i walk out of the room the chair is still there it exists separate from my perception and so on and so forth then we can have a million and one fights about what the mind independent object really is like but that's not relevant to this discussion correct um and i also see how in with regard to physical objects realism of physical objects we can easily describe the realist position in terms of truth right because the idea being something like well look you know there when i say the chair is in the room um i mean that i i consider that i conceive of that as being true in a very straightforward way it's true in the sense that the chair really exists and it really has this characteristic right. um but with moral realism it seems to me harder to sort of um harder to tell that story in quite that way right because when we're talking about moral realism so let's be specific we're talking about the existence of obligation moral obligations and duties right yes um and so first of all it's not entirely clear what the relevant um commensurate sense of mind independence is as it would be in the case of a physical object so what do i mean when i say a moral duty exists independently and also it wouldn't be independently of perception independently of what independently of conception um and then secondly um could i can i tell an equal an equally easy story about the truth of moral statements as i can about physical objects right well so a couple of comments uh the first one is i want to go back to your example of physical objects um yeah and, and, and uh, make it even more complicated, actually. Uh, uh, but then let's let's not forget to come back to this idea of you know mind independent in what in what sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So 
in, in terms of you know realism in science, uh, uh, the one that you mentioned, you know, like you know my chair or my desk or you know uh, objects out there independent of my mind. I think though that's I would call even that uh, uh, I would even call it sort of common sense realism, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Now in terms of philosophy of science, of course, things get more complicated when we're talking about realism and anti-realism of things like unobservable entities, like electrons. Like quarks. Yeah, electrons or quarks or, quarks or, quarks or things yeah, like that, yeah, right? Yeah. So these are things that scientific theories uh, use uh, to, you know, they deploy as concepts in order to make the theory coherent and, and also in order to uh, make predictions about empirically verifiable, you know, empirically verifiable predictions, so sort of, you know, data, data points. Now, the anti-realist there uh, says, look, I don't know whether these things exist or not out there uh, in the way in which science describes them. What I do know is that they are instrumentally uh, valuable. That is, you know, you can use them, you can assume, you, you can talk as if they existed, um, mm -hmm. and you can get stuff out of it. You can get empirical, empirically testable predictions. The realist, on the other hand, would say, no, 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 these things actually do exist. Electrons and quarks do exist in essentially the way, pretty much the way in which science describes them. You know, so the analogy there with um, uh, the anti-realist position in, uh, in ethics might be uh, something along the lines of, look, I don't know what you mean by you realist. What do you mean by, you know, these things, you know, facts uh, about uh, the existence of facts, of moral facts, but I can talk about morality as if and get stuff out of this like I can get you know social uh, pro-social behavior among human beings I can get laws that are useful for running society and all that sort of stuff but I don't need to be committed to this idea that uh, that these are this is actually a reflection of a, of a mind independent uh, reality out there does that make sense it, yes but then then I, then I just want to ask you what in, in what in what comparable sense can we talk about mind independent existing duties? Yeah, right. No, as opposed to mind independent existing objects. Right. That's the, that's what I find a bit obscure. Right. I, I don't think we actually can. I mean, I, I I suspect at this point, if I were forced to to uh, pick between realism and anti realism, I think I would be an anti realist at this point. Um, in ethics. In ethics, yes. Mm, um, okay. Yeah, I do believe that quarks actually exist. So I'm a, I'm yeah. actually a realist in science. Uh, and I'm an anti-realist in mathematics, if just if you, just just to cover all the bases. Um, okay. Although I, in that area, I started out as as you know really fascinated by by uh, mathematical Platonism, and then I sort of moved away from it. Anyway, um, later on, maybe we get we're going to get to get to the point uh, that, uh, however, I do think that this may be just a, a, a misconceived or no particular useful way of thinking about. Uh, about the issue that is putting it in terms of realism versus anti-realism. I think there are other ways of thinking about ethics, period. But if we're going to go back to the question of you know, mind independence and all that, I suppose there's one uh, easy answer, which is taken by some realists, although by, by all means not all, in fact, not even probably the majority of contemporary realist philosophers in ethics. And that is, well, uh, what we mean by realism is that these facts, these, these things, you know, moral, moral truths are real in the mind of God. Right, I mean that. Yeah. that's that's so, what uh, a theologically inclined uh, philosopher, realist philosopher, would say. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's actually where I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, to be a moral realist and to mean it quite in the same way that you mean realism with respect to physical objects or scientific and uh, theoretical entities or or numbers, etc., would either require some kind of um, uh, uh, theism or 
would require you to have some kind of a platonic view of of um, of, of of moral obligation and duty, which is just sort of hard hard to imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Um, it, it would be it would require something that that Mackey, I think, would call a, a queer kind of <laughs> metaphysics. Yeah, yeah, right? It's like a, yeah. a weird kind of thing, like what what do you mean? Uh, you know, how do yeah. how do you cash out these ideas? I mean, in the case of God, I think it's actually uh, surprisingly somewhat clear clearer, at least, um, yeah. what my, one might mean. But since I, I'm a secular person, I rejected the idea that we can invoke gods in order to solve metaphysical issues, then then I'm left with just scratching my head and say, well, what do you mean by uh, yeah. physical, you know, real real uh, moral truths out, out there? Yeah, just to mention for people that don't know, J.L. JL Mackey, who you mentioned, yeah. is probably, would you say, one of the most famous moral anti-realists? Yeah. Um, um, uh, and his book, is his book Ethics, is considered a kind of a, uh, a cornerstone of anti-realist uh, thought and ethics. Let me just ask you one thing, one more thing while we're on this subject, this question of definitions. Um, do you think then that, given what we've just said about moral realism, um, and I think a lot of moral realists may be unhappy to discover that we've described moral realism as really only being making any sense in a theistic context, since I think a lot of people would want to deny that. Yep. Um, but do you think that maybe that's in part because when people think they're talking about moral realism, they're really talking about something else. They're really talking about moral objectivism. Well, in some cases, that certainly I think that is that's a fair that's a fair point to be made. Um, I mean, I assume you know we want to obviously be charitable to actual professional philosophers working in these areas. So I assume that if somebody has uh, you know spent their career defending moral realism in academic publications, that person probably does have a a somewhat clear understanding of the distinction between realism and object and objectivism, uh, but I do think that in a lot of conversations, sort of outside of academia, which is really what it, what mostly concerns us here. I mean, we're not we're not yeah, trying to settle yeah. the issue academically. We're trying to figure no, out, no, no. you know, why this this is relevant to sort of general the general public. Then I think in the, in the in the broader area of you know in the broader uh, marketplace of ideas, so to speak. Uh, there, there often is this confusion between objectivism and and realism, so that people do uh, assume without further thought that in order to be objective uh, about moral statements, you also have to be a realist. Which, as I said, I, I kind of I reject for for similar reasons to where when I can reject that that same claim in mathematics, for instance. Right. Um, now, that said, you know the the problem with with the uh, with sort of a, some kind of strong ontological conception, you know, a realist conception of, of moral truths, is that I never heard, at least, uh, you know, this is not my field, I'm a philosopher of science, but I do read quite a bit about, you know, ethics and, and, uh, and, and even meta-ethics, and I never heard any particularly compelling, or in fact, any, any, any um, real assessment or, or, or account of what these people mean by realism. Uh, I mean, typically, uh, this is treated, you know, the reality that the actual theological nature of, you know, moral truths is sort of treated as a mystery for all effective purposes. You know, the, uh, 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 people think, you know, moral realists <clears throat> seem to work under the uh, assumption of, well, I think it is real. I think these things are real. And if they are, then here's what I'm going to get out of it. Here's, here's the, here are some consequences. But we don't have an explanation, for instance, an account of if they are real. Uh, if, if moral truths are out there in a sort of a mind-independent way of some, of some sort, then how is it that we can access them? Uh, and yeah. this, of course, is the, sa the same problem that we have with mathematical realism. 
uh, right? I mean, one of the objections to mathematical Platonism yeah. is, well, <laughs> um, if, if the, you're sort of telling me that there is a sixth sense of some sort uh, that we have so that we can access these, these uh, uh, ideal real uh, mathematical structures, but how does that work? And I never heard of any... Uh, yeah. You know any account of how that works? That, of course, is not a problem for <clears throat> common sense realism and even scientific realism, because we go, uh, we we know how to, we ex access empirical uh, uh, facts about the world. You know, we have the five senses, which are right. augmented or however they are, because that, there is a discussion about kind of the sciences about how many senses we actually have. But whatever, you know, the standard senses, uh, as well as, of course. Uh, the augmentation of those senses that comes out of using scientific instruments such as telescopes, microscopes, uh, particle accelerators, and so on and so forth. So we have a pretty good understanding of where we get, you know, how we can access empirical uh, uh, information about, you know, physical objects out there. We do not have anything like that, that kind of account for either mathematical or ethical realism. Uh, and for that matter, also, I mean, we haven't mentioned, but there's yet another type of, I suppose, uh, a class of realism. That's about aesthetic statements. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's beauty is really out there. It's not in the in the eye of the beholder. It's, 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 a, it's an objective fact about the world that comes out of this, some kind, again, of Platonist account of yeah. beauty of forms. And in all of those cases, I think that even though there are interesting differences, of course, between mathematics, ethics and aesthetics, I actually think that can, they kind of... Um, uh, in some sense, uh, they form a, um, a continuum where the uh, realist interpretation becomes more and more weird. I think I, I would put, if, I, if it were up to me, I would put the mathematical realism at the lower end of, of the sort of weirdness. Uh, you know, I can see uh, why somebody would be a mathematical realist. I reject that position, but I can see it. Uh, then, uh, you know, uh, ethical realism seems a little more weird to me, and then aesthetic realism sounds really, really weird. I, I would have no idea even where to start unless one were a full-fledged Platonist again or or where to fall back on, on sort of ideas of, of deity, um, both of which yeah. I, I reject as a, as a modern philosopher. Yeah, it's. I was going to say, it's, it's weird in a modern context. Um, right. In the ancient context, obviously for Plato, the form of the good and the form of the beautiful. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's this intimate sort of relationship between these concepts as well as relationship to mathematics. Right. Um, and it's partially their aesthetic perfection that is the basis of their realism, right? That's right. Um, of, of their status, their ontological status. But of course, that, that, that sort of commits you to an entire sort of worldview that obviously in the modern era, we don't hold. Right. Uh, we, don't, we don't accept. Well, most it. of us um, don't. <laughs> so, so let me ask, I mean, just... Because, you know, these, this, these are positions that people, lay people even, are going to be familiar with. I mean, given... Well, I'm sure, Massimo, that people will notice that we have once again gone into one of our uh, time machines <laughs> and uh, changed clothes. And uh, I don't know if, I've, if I'm any cleaner than I was, but um, <laughs> we had some technical difficulties and we needed to uh, record, finish recording a week later. So, um, Massimo, I, I had asked you... Our topic, as as the audience knows, is um, is moral moral the question of moral realism. Right. And I had asked you, I had said that I thought we needed to do a little disambiguation because I think a lot of times in this area, uh, certain concepts or or terms are conflated. And so I'd asked you to sort of talk a little bit about what you think moral realism is, and then maybe sort of place some of the other 
positions that are out there on the map. Right. Um, um, so maybe you might want to just for our, for our sake, not for the audience, recap um, what you meant, what, what you said in, my, in answer to my question about what moral realism is. Well, so so if we talk about moral realism, I, I think of moral realism as just one particular type of realism within you know sort of philosophical discussion. So it's it's a metaphysical position really. Uh, it, it is about the ontology of of moral statements or moral truths. And there are other types, as you know, of realism and anti-realism. There's, there's a, uh, that debate uh, in philosophy of science, for instance, about whether unobservable entities that are, uh, that are um, postulated by scientific theories, such as electrons and quarks, are real, meaning that we should take them at face value, basically, you know, the way science describes them, or just instrumental. They, they are uh, sort of hypothetical entities that make the calculations come out right and the experiments uh, being confirmed, but but about which one does not need actually to be um, uh, you know explicit about endorsing a particular ontological position. There's a similar debate in uh, mathematics about the realism or not of mathematical objects. Uh, so there are mathematical Platonists who say that, that yes, mathematical objects are real in a mind-independent way. They're you know not, not only objective but but you know but real. And then there are mathematical constructivists. Who say no, no, that, that that doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, talking about a sort of a realm of of um, sort of platonic uh, mathematical objects is not helpful. We we wouldn't know how we actually are able to access that that realm. Uh, so all we need to say is that mathematical objects are things that we construct, that that we invent basically as we go along. But that doesn't mean that they don't have objective properties uh, because that one of the things that we talked about in the first part of the of this dialogue was about the distinction between objectivity uh, and realism that is one can be objective about things that are not uh, ontologically real right one one can for instance um, invent a new game you know let's say when people invented chess uh, clearly there is you know, there's no I, I would hope that very few people would argue that there is a ideal realm where chess is you know mind independent uh, chess is a human invention, but once it has been invented uh, and the rules are set set down, uh, then there are actually objective facts of the matter about how to play chess. There are objective facts of the matter um, about uh, certain moves and, and the consequences of certain moves. Uh, so objectivism is different from from realism. Now, in the case of morality, of course, the claim here is that the the, the realist claim is that uh, moral truths are, ob are not only objective, but they are real in some sense. It's like, you know, they're, they're mind independent. They're, they're, there's some kind of consistency, not physical consistency, obviously, but sort of ontological uh, reality. Uh, the anti-realist says, no, I, I, I don't I don't even know, I don't know to, to how to make even sense of that, um, of that claim, um, because, you know, what would this realm consist of? And again, how would we be able to access it? Now, the only, uh, reasonable answer, and I use the word reasonable here in with sort of caution. The only reasonable answer, I mean, in other words, the only reasonable realist, you know, strong realist position that one can defend is if you are a theist. If you say, well, uh, what I mean by the mind independence of moral truths is, you know, God, uh, uh, moral truths are guaranteed by God's uh, will or by God's mind. But if you don't accept that, if you're, you know, if you're a secular person, then you're left with this really weird concept of of the reality of moral truths that is really difficult to handle now what we what we you were asking me then at the end of the the first part was uh what about positions in ethics such as you know frameworks in ethics such as utilitarianism 
uh, or the ontology, you know, are, are they realist or non-realist, you know, anti-realist position? That, that's, a, that's a very interesting question, and, and I actually would be, as you know, I'm neither a deontologist nor a, nor a <laughs> consequentialist or utilitarian. I'm actually a virtual ethicist. But, um, and so I'd be interested to see how somebody like Peter Singer, for instance, would, would answer that question. But the way I think about it, the realism anti-realism debate is on a different level than the debate between different frameworks for uh, for ethical reasoning. Uh, so I see the realism anti-realism debate as an issue of in, in meta ethics, uh, as opposed to actual you know uh, you know everyday ethics. If you if you want to if you want to put it that put it this way. So for instance, I I can imagine. Let's take utilitarianism. I can imagine that somebody could be either a realist or an anti-realist about utilitarianism. One can say, well, uh, the reason uh, utilitarians want to maximize happiness and minimize suffering is because that's an objective, mind-independent feature of morality. That's what morality means in a sort of a independent, um, from the human mind fashion. Or the utilitarian could retreat to, a, or I, I shouldn't even say retreat, uh, could use a, or could deploy a, anti-realist position and say, look, I, I, I understand this is not a universal truth, you know, the cosmos doesn't really care about suffering and happiness, but we're human beings, we do uh, care about suffering and happiness, and so if you uh, take that as an axiom, uh, then you then you can uh, deploy a, a uh, logically coherent system uh, which has utilitarians uh, or consequentialists uh, characteristics. And I assume the same can be done for the ontology and from quite frankly, even for virtual ethics, right? Even though virtual ethics, as you know, approaches things from a very different perspective because in virtual ethics, it doesn't even make sense to ask whether something is right or wrong. Uh, that's not the point of, of the virtual ethicist. The virtual ethicist asks what kind of life one should, should live. But even within that question, one could be a realist or an anti-realist about it, right? Like I could say, well, there's a, such a thing as a universal truth about how, uh, you know, conscious beings capable of reason should live their lives. Uh, or one could be an anti-realist about virtual ethics and say, look, uh, you know, this is the way we're human beings, we're, we're beings of a of certain kind where this is an accident of evolution. And for us, for beings like us, uh, it makes sense to, to, you know, to, to um, act in a certain way and, and to uh, reason in a certain way. But you don't have to invoke any sort of platonic ideal about virt virtue uh, in order to do so. Um. Okay, so so let's let's unpack some of this um, <laughs> with respect to with respect to um, so with respect to realism. You're characterizing realism as a kind of uh, being a realist about uh, about morals is uh, believing that sort of duties and obligations are are mind independent are determined. And I mean, what what is it that we're realist about? Are we are being are we realist about duty and obligation? Um, that that's a very good question. I think that the, at a minimum level, the realist in in uh, in uh, ethics would have to say that there is a truth of the matter. There is a fact of the matter about whether a moral statement is true or not. Right. So if I say let's let's talk about actual you know situations. So if I say that, um, you know, uh, going around uh, randomly killing people is wrong, right? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, for, for the moral realist, the moral realist will have to say that, that this statement is subject to truth conditions. Uh, it could be true or, or not true, uh, if you want to use standard, you know, bimodal logic, Aristotelian logic, or it could uh, uh, 
uh, actually, you could you could use a more complex, you know, multimodal logic and say, well, there's degrees of truth to it. But nonetheless, uh, let's stick with the with the basics and say, uh, so the realist is committed to the idea that that particular statement is true, as opposed to say, uh, a statement like, um, uh, according to etiquette, uh, you have to put your fork uh, on the right and your and your knife on the left. It could be the other way around. I don't know. Uh, right. So nobody presumably would say or at least very few people would say that the etiquette, the statement about etiquette um, has, is subject to, truth, to, to, moral, to uh, truth values that are mind independent, they are universal. I mean, that it's clearly a cultural, uh, uh, a completely um, arbitrary cultural decision. If you, if you live in a particular culture, uh, then you're going to put the fork in here and the knife over there. If you live in a different culture, you're going to do it the right way around. If you even in a, live in a third culture, they, people, people won't even know what a, a, a fork or a, or a knife is, and they'll use chopsticks. So, right. right? So I think that's the, the contrast that it's often drawn. That is, uh, if you want to be realist about moral statements, then basically what you're saying is that moral statements are subject uh, to truth conditions. And then the question, of course, comes up immediately. Well, where do we get those truth conditions? Um, right. I was going to say. I was going to say. It's not just that they have truth conditions. I mean, even uh, as you described, a moral objectivist who's not a realist is going to say that these statements are true, or are are genuine propositions that are either true or false, right? And that have truth conditions. The, what distinguishes realism is how the truth conditions are cashed out, right? I um, suppose so. I mean, you could say, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I suppose you could say that. And this is probably a simplification in our our. I'm sure our friends in in, in that that are. The publishing metaethics will be horrified by this simplification, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, so, following up on what you just said, so maybe one could say that a moral realist is committed uh, to some kind of correspondence theory of truth, uh, just like uh, not only the moral, the, the scientific realist is, but even the mathematical realist is. Uh, you know, Platonists have to invoke some kind of correspondence theory of truth. That is, a mathematical statement is true because it corresponds to the, you know, this ideal reality in the Platonic, in the Platonic realm. Um, right. right now, on the other hand, the not the anti-realist uh, could say, "Look, uh, I can still use the word truth, but what I mean here, it's a different, it's a different concept. It's something more along the lines of a coherent uh, theory of truth. It's something like, you know, if I start with certain ax axioms, uh, either in mathematics uh, or or in uh, ethics." Uh, then I can derive certain objective, you know, uh, properties of either mathematical or moral statements, and I'm going to use the word true for that. But but by truth, that's what I mean. I don't mean that they correspond to something out there. I just mean that they follow logically from whatever axioms uh, I'm I'm going to start with. And of course, somebody can reasonably reasonably ask you, well, why are you starting with those axioms rather than others? And then we're going to have a discussion about that. Okay, so. Then going back to, to the question of um, utilitarianism and Kantianism, so I mean I, I agree with you in the sense that they're not they are not position the position they're positions that occupy in a sense a different conceptual space than realism and anti-realism because they're not they're not meta-ethical positions. Right. Um, but I do think that most people, and maybe this is part of the problem, is that people conflate moral realism with moral objectivism. Yes. Certainly, they're both morally objectivist. And maybe after I ask you this and we go back a little bit, then back and forth a little bit, we can talk a little bit more about what we mean by moral objectivism. But right. um, certainly they're moral objectivists. But I think that most people, and I think I even looked this up on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I think they characterize them as morally realist too. Um, most people think of them as morally realist. Yes, yeah, I think that's and fair. So let, 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 let me give you a stab as to how that might go, right? So, sure. 
So with respect to utilitarianism, um, utilitarianism famously says that we're obligated, morally obligated, to maximize happiness and to not create unhappiness, right. um, where happiness is defined as pleasure in the absence of pain. And that theory of obligation is based upon a prior theory of value that says that pleasure in the absence of pain are the only is the only intrinsic good. Right. Um, now, Bentham, who is the originator of utilitarianism, argues that that value theory is grounded in nature. In other words, you write at the opening of his Principles of Morals and Legislation, the very first thing he says right. is that the reason why you th should think that hedonism is true as a value theory is because pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain is a basic natural imperative, right? Right. right. Now... That's it's that that would make the obligations grounded in something that I don't know whether even the word mind independence would make sense, but certainly it would ground it in a reality that is neither the result of human decision or or agreements. Right. 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 Um, so in that sense, would that count as realist in the sense that you mean? Uh, no. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, there, there can be very reasonable room for for uh, argument here for for discussion here but no it, it not that it wouldn't count in the way I look at realism and, and it is is the reason what you just described uh, sounds to me like a naturalistic theory it is. right yeah it is. so it's it's gonna ground eventually uh, it's gonna say that morality at bottom you know originates at least uh, it that it, it doesn't it's not exhausted by but it certainly originates from you know, uh, a, whatever human nature is. And, and human nature, of course, is a result of uh, uh, evolution, and therefore it, right. it is an accident in, in, in terms of, you know, it's not, it's not guaranteed by any lo general laws of physics. It's just happened to be that way. It could have been different. Um, if that's the case, and by the way, I actually tend to be a naturalist about ethics from that perspective. Um, I actually do think that ethics originates uh, as an instinct uh, that we share with other social primates. Uh, uh -huh. it, it's, it's just that then we go beyond... The, the, the reason I don't think, however, as you well know, uh, that, that uh, ethics is reducible to a simple... to a science of some sort or, you know, to straightforward biology is because uh, then we got culture on top of it and then we got, you know, uh, the, the necessity to sort of elaborate um, on ethical principles and ethical consequences by reason. So I think that just because it, ethics is grounded in a naturalistic framework, that doesn't mean that that naturalistic framework exhausts uh, um, uh, ethical reasoning. Just like, by the way, I'm a naturalist about mathematics. I mean, I think that mathematics did originate with our curiosity and ability to count things and, and look at the shape of things and, and, and quantify stuff. Um, but but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, mathematical reasoning is then therefore exhausted uh, uh, at that level. So so if you're talking about a, a naturalistic origin or an naturalistic grounding of ethics, I, I might agree, but I wouldn't call that realism okay. in the same way that we would be discussing before. I mean, maybe you know we need a different term. And actually, I think naturalism is a good one uh, for that yeah. for that uh, for that particular approach. Yeah. Now, with respect to Kant, and I'm only mentioning these two because these are the two moral theories that most right. people are familiar with and probably are the ones that dominate the landscape, even in the uh, academic literature. Yes. Um, um, so with regard to Kantianism, the idea is that um, a moral obligation um, is that which... Are, are, a moral obligation is essentially those imperatives that one can rationally will uh, of everyone. Right. Um, and... 
it's a very it's probably too complicated and difficult to explain uh, in, in in this sort of medium. But the idea is sort of that basically um, obligations and duties are things that are distinctively discernible by uh, reason, right. um, and because reason, while again not mind independent. It's also what re, it's also not something that is constructed or artificed, right? In the in in the sense that is normally meant uh, by by construction and artifice and agreement and stuff like convention and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I know that, for example, in the Middle Ages, one they they, they believed that natural law could be just dis, di, discerned by reason. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, that, in other words, in other words, the plan that God had put into the universe could be discerned by reason. That it's the, the Catholic notion of fides et ratio, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and so, and so, would Kant then not count as a realist? Because, in a sense, what re reason does is detect these these timeless, mind-independent truths um, that 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 if one is in a theistic uh, framework. Uh, actually, can detect the sort of the structure of, of reality and of the universe. Right. Would, would Kant then count as a more as a moral? Yeah, yeah. I, I, if you put it that way, and Kant, Kant specifically, yes, it definitely would. Uh, and in fact, you know, as you know, so Kant is is an exa is the most prevalent contemporary, you know, modern example of of deontology. But of course, deontological systems are very common among religions. Uh, you know, yeah. the Ten Commandments, of course, is, is the deontological system. So, in right. that sense, uh, many, if not all, of the deontological systems are realists because many of them actually invoke the existence of a god in order to to uh, justify, you know, the ontological status of the commandments. You know, the commandments are ontologically real because God is ontologically real. Right. Now, in the case of Kant, I think you're right that the way you you sort of reconstructed uh, the reasoning is is exactly right and therefore that would make Kant a realist all I was saying is that one does need to does not need to be committed to the idea that there is a moral law within as, as Kant famously put it uh, that we discover by reason one can simply say look um, I think it's uh, it's a promising starting point if I build an ethical system uh, based on the categorical imperative right uh, or, or one or the, or, or the other of the two versions of the categorical imperative. So, you know, either you should only do things that you will, uh, uh, could be universal, uh, or you uh, do things, you, you, you treat other people always as a, uh, uh, not only as a means to an end, but also as an end in themselves. Okay, I could say, well, either those two are the result of sort of rational introspection and you discover these, these um, mysterious moral law within yourself, or you can say, look, as it turns out, if you start with that with that axiom, with the categorical imperative, you can derive uh, rationally a coherent system that actually seems to work very well for, uh, you know, regulating human affairs. In which case, you'd be uh, you, you have, you've come up with an anti-realist version of, of Kantianism. I'm not saying that's what Kant was doing. Yeah, I think you're right that Kant would, uh, definitely thought of his of, of this thing in realist uh, uh, terms, even though, of course, at the time the word wasn't around. Uh, right, to, right. to you know to, to label this position, but what I'm saying is that what I what I was saying a few minutes ago is that although you're right that both consequentialism or utilitarianism and deontology are usually understood as realist positions, nothing really uh, gets in the way of reconsidering them or sort of re recasting them as anti-realist positions, precisely because there is a a, a leeway, there is a little bit of a detachment, uh, logical detachment between. Uh, sort of meta ethics and and and, right. and uh, ethical reasoning, you know, everyday ethical reasoning. Right. So, in other words, one could be 
a moral anti-real. I don't even want to. Let's not say a moral anti-realist. Let's say not a moral realist. <laughs> okay. So, 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 well, because I think there's some ambiguities there too. Yeah. I think sometimes moral anti-realism just means not realism, right. but sometimes it means people who think there are no obligations or duties in any sense, right? Right. So, so, so I'm just going to say not a metaphysical realist. So the point is just that someone could be not a metaphysical realist, and still either think that consequences are morally relevant, which is what will make them a consequentialist, right. or think that motives and principles are, are morally relevant, which is will make them a deontologist, right. even though in the larger picture they don't think that um, that uh, duties and obligations are anything that exists separate either of hum by either separately from human agreement or in, in other words, the focus on consequence or intent or principle um, can can proceed regardless of whether of what one's meta ethical position is. That's right. Is, is, is in a sense what you're saying, and I think that that maybe maybe one of the things we can one of the things we'll be doing is sort of dis, is, is sort of clearing up some confusions. I think that a lot of people um, don't realize that they they think that somehow the meta ethical discussion has some very strong. Bear, I mean, I'm thinking of some arguments I've had on your blog, right. on, on, not your blog, on your webzine, yeah. Santia, mm -hmm. with certain parties you shall go unnamed, <laughs> um, um, about who keep hammering on moral realism, right. and and um, and I think that sometimes they they make a mistake in thinking that that penetrates more deeply into the first order. Right. Uh, uh, discourse than it really does, and, right. and I think you've just given a nice way of showing that it really does need. So to, let me right? let me bring up another way of thinking about this, uh, which yeah, I kind yeah. of hinted at before. But as you as you notice, I, I often draw a parallel between ethics and and mathematics, uh, not because they're the same kind of things, but because I think they're similar enough that that uh, parallels are actually more enlightening than than not. Now. Um, uh, you mentioned Ciencia Salon. So recently uh, on the magazine, we have had a discussion uh, based on a, on a two-part essay that I wrote about uh, Lise Mullin and, um, and uh, Roberto Unger's um, book uh, that came out recently uh, called The Reality, the, the Single Universe and the Reality of Time. The, the, the book, we don't need to get into the details because the book is, is about cosmology and the status of, of physics. But there is a really interesting couple of chapters there, one in each part of the book, about uh, mathematics, the nature of mathematics. And um, uh, Lise Mullin in particular, who is the physicist of the, of the pair, the other one is a philosopher, Unger is a philosopher, uh, has come up with what I, I, I never actually encountered before. I mean, I don't know if the position is entirely original with him, but, but I, it probably isn't. But, um, but I never encountered before, and when I read it, I said, oh, okay, that makes sense. So uh, he has the same problem, right? He wants to retain the idea that mathematics is a, a special and kind of ende intellectual endeavor which has, is very powerful and very useful for science, but he wants to get away from what he sees, I think correctly, as sort of the mysticism or at least the very the, the sort of the, the ontologically troublesome um, uh, idea of mathematical Platonism, okay? And so how does he do that? He, he introduces this idea of uh, evoking or evocation. So he says, look, um, people typically get stuck into, into a dichotomy, uh, which turned out to be false. It's either mathematical objects are real in a, in a platonic sense, and therefore mathematics is you know, an objective uh, pursuit of knowledge, or uh, mathematics is an invention, it's a human invention, and, and people just make up stif stuff as they go, and therefore there is no truth to the matter really about mathematical, uh, mathematical propositions. It's just you know some of them are useful, some of them are not. 
Um, and he says, look, neither one of this actually gets us um, very far. Uh, there is a third option. The third option is that mathematics is a, um, is a human invention, just like um, the game of chess, let's say, that I mentioned earlier. But that once you do invent it, and it has a naturalistic origin, by the way, which it goes into, right, uh, you know, that there are several stages of a naturalistic origin of mathematics and mathematical thinking, which, of course, started out initially as very much grounded in sort of practical problems of counting and, and, uh, and simple geometry and things like that. Uh, but once it gets going, then, 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 uh, then mathematicians sort of develop, you know, new approaches to things. They introduce axioms and then derive uh, logical consequences from these, from these axioms. Um, and the idea is that once you start introducing new notions and once you start introducing, let's say, new axioms, then you are evoking certain truths. That is, once you assume, let's say, the, the parallel postulate, for instance, in geometry, then certain things become objectively true. Uh, you know, right. the, 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 the Pythagorean theorem or, or, you know, a number of other theorems in mathematics become objectively true. There's no discussion about it. Just like, uh, you know, certain characteristics of the game of chess become objectively true. And people, in fact, can do a lot of research and a lot of, you know, interesting investigations about the properties of, of the game yeah. of chess. So he calls these evoked uh, properties, meaning that these properties were not out there to be discovered, you know, in, mind in a mind-independent way. They were just, you know, they, they didn't exist until somebody said, hey, let's start with these axioms or let's, let's formulate this particular axiom. Once the axiom is formulated, however, these properties, objective properties, are evoked into existence uh, using Smolin's um, um, yeah. uh, sort of vocabulary. Uh, and they become objective. They they definitely are objective. There, there's no you know there is no disagreement, uh, rational disagreement about what they are. So now, of course, ethics is much less formalized than mathematics, and that's why we can have a hell of a lot more discuss reasonable discussion about you know ethical principles and what it, and what they imply and so on and so forth. But I don't think they are arbitrary either. I don't think you can get anything everything you want out of ethical principles. Once you start with certain uh, principles which are the ethical equivalent of axioms in mathematics, uh then certain things do follow rationally and other things do not follow rationally. Um, yeah. Now, again, just like in mathematics, you can say, well, but why are you picking those uh, axioms or those assumptions rather than others? And we can have an interesting discussion about that. Some of those axioms, I think, are uh, uh, spring sort of pretty, pretty naturally from, from, the, from the naturalistic roots of both mathematics and ethics. Uh, others are, you know, made up, invented by eth ethicists or mathematicians because they seem promising. And, and then people explore the consequences of them. You know, I think that actually... Uh, you know, something like a, a Kantian deontological system is a good example of it. Uh, you know, what, you can say, okay, so if we, if we do start with the idea that we should always treat people as ends in themselves and not just as means to an end, what, what follows from that? Uh, so so eth ethics at that point becomes not a matter of here's a truth and now I'm going to discover it. It becomes a matter of a, a, a series of if-then statements. So if I start with this assumption, then what follows from it? Yeah. And of course, people are, uh, that, that disagree with a particular ethical conclusion can do two things, just like, a, like they can always do in, in logic, right? They can either question the soundness of, you know, the validity of, of sorry, of your, of your uh, reasoning. I can say, well, actually, it doesn't. As it turns out, what you think follows from your axioms doesn't, and here's why. Or they can they can question the axiom and say, well, why did you pick that one? Or I think that this other axiom is better, you know, more defendable. 
uh, defensible or, or more appropriate for beings, uh, social beings capable of reason such as humans and so on and so forth. Which is why, by the way, I do think that um, discussions about uh, uh, the, the, the different ethical frameworks will never be settled. Uh, and they cannot be Mark. So, Massimo, is your thing working? Yeah, it is. I hope. <laughs> I, I will have the audience know that this is Massimo's fault. Massimo is on some Wi-Fi uh, in in the bottom of the Port Authority bus terminal. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the homeless people keep running off with his... Uh, with his That's uh, right. I'm, a, um, I'm actually surprisingly so, in my office at the Graduate Center at CUNY, and boy, that's not different. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> it's no different, apparently, from the Port Authority bus terminal. Anyway. Um, okay, Masama, you were talking about why um, this comparison of mathematics and ethics and why you think this shows that we're never going to come to a single ethical theory or resolve the dispute between utilitarians and Kantians and such. So why don't you just right. pick up so, from that? So if you think of ethics, again, as similar, though non-identical because uh, to mathematics, because mathematics is much more formal and much more structured and all that. Uh, but if you think of it in, 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 that, in that way, then you have to admit that, you know, logic by itself uh, uh, sort of underdetermined, has to underdetermine uh, the choice of ethical frameworks. So, you, so that, that you can say... Uh, look, uh, utilitarianism uh, may or may not work, may or may not be a good idea. Uh, we, we can have a discussion about this, or we can have a similar discussion about deontology or a similar discussion about virtual ethics or any of the other, you know, um, uh, ethical frameworks that are being proposed, for instance, uh, you know, ethics of care. But if you ask the question, you know, well, well, which one is true? I mean, that question makes no sense for the same reason that uh, it doesn't make much sense to ask whether, let's say, Euclidean geometry or spherical geometry are true. I'm not sure what that means. Right. It's like, well, uh, one can be more useful for certain applications than others, or you can ask whether they've been developed in a coherent way and, you know, and so on. But to say, well, which one is true, uh, again, invokes some kind of, at least implicitly, some kind of correspondence to your truth, and therefore it, it, it brings you back to, you know, sort of this, this weird yeah. ontological realism. If you reject that, then you're left with a coherent uh, theory of truth, but as you know, coherence definitely, you know, usually grossly underdetermines sort of uh, the empirical world, and it underdetermines, uh, you know, what happens in the real world. So you can say, well, I decide for whatever reason that I want to be a deontologist, I'm, I think that Kant's, uh, you know, uh, imperative, uh, categorical imperative is a good idea, so I'm going to try to develop a system that is coherent with that. And nobody can say, well, you're, you're wrong. They can say you're not coherent or you're not deriving it in, you know, well enough, yeah. but, but you can't say they're wrong. Well, although you can sort of point out that there, there are any number of cases in which the Kantian theory would seem to give you the wrong answer, right? I mean, at least, at least one that sort of violates pre -the our pre-theoretic moral, moral Correct. intuitions. In which case you can um, say um, that what's happening there is that it doesn't work well, right? Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's similar yeah. to, again, let me throw the analogy here with, so let's say, a mathematical model. Right. One, one of the things is when I was a, a more active scientist before I turned full time to philosophy, I was doing a little bit of I'm, I was mostly an empirical scientist, but I was doing a little bit of modeling, you know, of, of certain sit situations in ecology and evolutionary biology. And the first thing you, 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 you uh, realize about models is that they cannot possibly be wrong unless you wrote the code wrong. 
right? Uh, right. Which is the equivalent uh, in, in, in computer uh, science of, of uh, uh, deriving, you know, irrational or illogical or incoherent uh, consequences from your axioms. But if you wrote the, co the code correctly, then the model cannot be wrong. What can be go going wrong is that the model doesn't correspond well enough to reality. In other words, it doesn't work. It's not useful. Um, but yeah, but you yeah. can't say well the model is wrong um, unless there is a, an actual mistake um, uh, built into it. So. Right. Although although in the case of ethics, if you're going to say that the model does the, the the model doesn't correspond well to reality, then that would seem to imply that there's a moral reality for it to correspond to. Right. Which um, which, th which then sounds like moral realism right. again. But if but um, if you're putting um, that in terms of yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. So let me be very clear about it, or as clear as I can get about it, which is. What I meant when, if you say, well, uh, you know, certain uh, certain consequences from a Kantian system don't work, I don't mean that they don't work when they're compared to a sort of an ideal reality. I mean that they don't seem to, as you pointed out, as you put it a minute ago, they seem to contradict uh, what you call pre-theoretical ethical commitments, right? So in other words, they go against a naturalistic understanding of, of morality. And if that's the case, then, of course, we have to come up with, you know, then we're faced with a choice. We either say, well, too bad for our naturalistic commitment or too bad for our intuitions. And sometimes that actually is not a bad idea, uh, right? Yeah. And other, in other yeah. cases, you could say, well, actually, no, this, this uh, commits me to things that are really uh, are unacceptable and therefore too bad for the system that committed me to, to these to this, uh, yeah. solutions. Now, what I, I can already hear the critics say, oh, but then that means, you know, anything goes and, and you know, it's all arbitrary and all that. No, no, no. I don't think that anything goes. I think that if you do reject either your pre-theoretical commitments or your, your theoretical ones, then you, you, you still have to come up with reasons for it. I mean, it's like, so why do you think that that particular theoretical, uh, you know, pre-theoretical commitment is so strong that, that it ought to be maintained even though it seems to be uh, incoherent with the rest of a system that you think works? Uh, and vice versa, if you say, you know, well, I'm going to abandon the system that was working until now, but now I found the problem. And you say, well, is that is the problem really that that cogent to to say that you want to abandon the system or can you perhaps work on the system? And after all, you know, modern Kantianism is not identical to the original version that we find in Kant's works. And modern utilitarianism is certainly not identical to the original works of Bentham or even Mill. Uh, yeah. right? So that's what yeah. philosophers do. They, they find uh, situations that are problematic uh, and they work around, they, they try to work around the, the system and sort of improve it, you know, chisel things a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah and, and, even, and even someone like, you know, if you look at John Rawls's uh, the, social contractarianism, right. not, a, not as a political theory, but as an ethic, which many people, many people right. do, um, you can even say that there are people who are trying to create new frameworks that try to incorporate elements of these other frameworks that are somewhat mutually exclusive, yet on satisfying in themselves, and yet never completely right. satisfying. And so, um, um, yeah, I, I, I entirely look I, in this sense. I think you and I, you and I, probably um, uh, get to the same get to the same place, uh, maybe through slightly different routes. Um, uh, my, my general, I, I don't think any ontological questions go beyond uh, frames of reference or conceptual right. frameworks. In that sense, I'm a metaphysical anti-realist yeah. and uh, sort of a la Nelson Goodman. And so um, to me, there's no harm in saying that there are really duties because I understand all ontological commitments as occurring within right. frameworks. And I don't think ontological questions can be asked outside of right. frameworks. Um, and so 
to me to say that there's a duty is simply to say, uh, given a certain set of assumptions and in a certain frame of reference, uh, I, I'm going to ontologically commit to duties. Right. Um, uh, but to, but that's not saying anything metaphysically realist in the sense that is meant uh, when people talk about realist ontologies. Uh, and so we wind up, I think you and I wind up probably in the same place. Um, l- let me ask you, so just to uh, quickly... Um, to distinguish now moral objectivism, because then I want to ask you something about um, about normativity. Okay. So, uh, how would you how would you define um, moral objectivism in contrast with moral realism? So here I would use the same uh, concept that I brought up earlier from from Lee Smalling, uh, the concept of evocation, right? So um, I mean that objectivism, moral objectivism, means that there are certain statements, certain moral statements that follow logically and coherently from certain uh, axioms that one might use in, in building an ethical system. And that's all I mean by objectivism. So it's not, so moral truths are objective, not in the sense that they correspond to something, you know, metaphysical out there, um, but in the sense that they are logically and coherently derived from a, a set of, a particular set of axioms. Um, now, some people might not be satisfied with that and say, well, but that opens up the the, the the possibility of, of moral relativism, you know, completely complete relativism. I right. don't think it does. Right. Just like there is no uh, relativism in, in mathematics, uh, for instance. Uh, you know, even if you do start with different axioms, uh, certain things then become objectively true. And there's even no relativism about the game of chess. It's not like you can say whatever you want about the game of chess because there are certain rules and certain consequences are mandated by those rules. Right. Uh, so now the the relativist could retreat one more level, right? You could say, well, okay, I'm going to make a meta-ethical statement, you know, sort of relativistic meta-ethical statement, and say there's no reason, there's no way to uh, uh, discriminate between different set of axioms. So there's no uh, no way to ground your ethics into anything ob- uh, objective at that level, so at, at the meta-ethical level. And there I would have to say, well. There are still some things that are non-arbitrary there. Um, if you if you do agree uh, on some kind of naturalistic account of ethics or the origin of ethics, then even at that level, you cannot be entirely relativistic because the, because human beings have certain characteristics. We have certain desires. We have certain you yeah. know. Uh, there is. I do actually think that there is such a thing as human nature, as as broadly defined and as you know fluid as it may it may be. Um, yeah. Now, I, interestingly, I have a colleague right here at the Graduate Center, uh, Jesse Prince, who is a, definitely a moral relativist, and he's, he's, he's on record for that, and we had you know, a number of discussions about it. And when I brought up this point, I found out that he's, in fact, coherently, I think, he's, in fact, uh, skeptical about the very, the very uh, notion of human nature. He just rejects entirely the idea of a human nature. He thinks that biology yeah. has nothing whatsoever to do with the way we organize societies and relations and so on and so forth. And there I have to part ways, both as a biologist, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not a genetic determinism, determinist, I'm not a biological yeah. determinist, but I don't think the biology has nothing to do uh, with the no. way uh, we, we work as, as living organisms. Um, and, and also, quite frankly, as a virtuatist, you know, Aristotle will certainly be ba- baffled by the idea that there's no such yeah. thing as human nature. Now, is human nature however pliable? Uh, and uh, can it be, you know, altered, um, for instance, through um, uh, uh, sort of cultural evolution? I think that's true. I, I found this really interesting essay uh, a few years ago about 
David Hume's conception of human nature. So he, he did have a conception of human nature, which was a naturalistic one. Uh, but he also thought that human nature is changeable. And what, you know, the way you do change it is, in fact, through cultural, what we today would call cultural evolution. And, and it would call cultural right. adjustments or cultural uh, modifications, right? Uh, so that, because we build, you know, on uh, culture is built on, of course, on, on, a, on a foundation of biology. And the more culture becomes complex, the more culture becomes uh, independent of, or, or, you know, less directly connected to, uh, to biology, which is why I'm not a determinist and not a reductionist. Um, but even that doesn't happen... Uh, arbitrarily. I mean, there are certain things that human beings are, sim that are simply unnatural for human beings and you don't get them to do. I mean, I think that, for instance, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a simplification of a very complex issue. But I think that the reason why we never had and never will have either a Marxist utopia or a libertarian utopia is because those two doctrines, uh, political doctrines, political philosophical doctrines, make unreasonable assumptions about human nature. A Marxist right. ideology essentially treats human beings as as uh, social insects, as you know, you know individuality doesn't matter. Uh, we 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 are all in sort of this this uh, kind of uh, B type uh, uh, or, or ant type um, uh, society, which is clearly not the case. Uh, the libertarian uh, political philosophy makes exactly the opposite uh, assumption, which is that we are essentially completely independent individual individuals that don't need really society or that they have very little use, comparatively speaking. Uh, for social interactions and social interdependence. That's also not going to work. Um, and those are both not going to work, uh, and they're dead in the water, precisely because human nature is a com it's a complex mix of those two. We are individualistic to some extent, but we're also inherently and inextricably social to some extent. And, yeah. and that's why yeah. things like, you know, as you know, the, there's been lots of discussions about whether... Uh, fundamental uh, social units such as the family, you know, Aristotle famously thought of the family as a fundamental social unit, um, and, and he, fed, he, he thought of it, uh, he had a very interesting image of it, Aristotle thought of, of uh, families um, as well as cities, uh, uh, polis, as, um, as social groups that are, the purpose of which is, is to uh, engender good living. Right. So the, the, the idea is that when they function well, when they have their, their function, when they, when they perform their function well, uh, they allow people to have a good life and or the best life that is possible to have, you know, given um, uh, material constraints. Now, uh, there's been a lot of discussion, of course, throughout the 20th century about whether this idea of a, of a family structure or, or group structure of a particular type is, is not, in fact, in, you know, simply an arbitrary one that can be uh, done without. And, and, and people have explored uh, different models of organizing groups, and by and large, they've all failed. Uh, you know, with some exceptions, with partial exceptions. I mean, well, obviously, we are we're modifying the very structure of the family. You know, look at, uh, of course, gay rights, uh, the affirmation of gay rights in contemporary society. So we we are changing some of the structure of the family, but we haven't gotten rid of it. Uh, when, whenever we tried, you know, to you know uh, organize communes and and uh, and. Um, uh, much more sort of basic egalitarian uh, societies, pretty much they have all failed. Um, and I think that there is a reason for, for why they failed, um, because they just don't work very well uh, with this complex mixture of biology and, and, and culture that has shaped uh, human nature over the last several millennia. Um, now, if we went back to a pre, uh, in, not only pre-industrial, but also pre agricultural society, one can make an argument that some of these more egalitarian models would work. Uh, but one of the reasons, and they probably did work in, in uh, you know, early uh, 
human evolution. But the reason they worked is because the structure was very different in terms of, you know, for instance, group size. You know, uh, good luck uh, implementing a completely uh, egalitarian system of, let's say, representation, the right representation in a society on, uh, that is made of, of hundreds of millions of individuals. Uh, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, it does work with when you have 50 individuals in the group. It does not. It simply ceases to work structurally uh, when you go to millions. Now you say, but I don't have to go to millions. Fine, uh, <laughs> you don't have to. But if you want to live in New York City, you know, certain things, certain approaches to uh, structure uh, just are, are not going to work. The political structure are not going to work. And apparently, also occasionally, Wi-Fi isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the you know the, the the reasons why these these um artificial sort of planned communities don't work is maybe in a sense the same reason this is my inclination partly is the same reason why moral theories don't work and that is that um they focus on only one yeah. element um um uh when human beings uh are characterized by a complexity of elements and i also think human beings are characterized by a complexity of elements which are oftentimes uh mutually contradictory right. and so and so uh you have the further problem is that um, the pre, the sort of the pre-theoretic template that you're trying to then systematize into a theory um, uh, is itself uh, not internally consistent, right. and so the internal the attempt on the parts of theories which have to be internally consistent to that they're never going to adequately replicate or or model something that is inherently inconsistent in the way yeah. it operates. Um, um, well, that, but that's so. Before, sorry, you, before you go yeah, ahead, go I mean, I think this is go an ahead. excellent point that that really bear. Uh, so reiteration, it's it's like, because it, this is a source of a lot of confusion among, among people. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Our pre-theoretical commitment, as we, we call them, which, you know, from a naturalistic perspective, just comes come come out if eventually out of, you know, the, the kind of social being that, that humans are. Um, and of course, also from the result of cultural evolution and so on and so forth. But um, yeah. so those pre-theoretical commitments, you're right, they're definitely not coherent. You, you wouldn't expect them to be logically coherent because they're a result of historical, uh, both biological and cultural evolution. So, you know, there, there was no plan yes. there, uh, uh, you know, overall plan. And when you're trying to, ma to match them with a system that you're trying to be, uh, you know, ethical system you're trying to make as logically rigorous as possible, it's not going to work. That is precisely why, or at least that's one of the reasons why I'm a virtual ethicist and not a deontologist or utilitarian, because virtual ethics is yeah. not a, 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 a that kind of rigid, you know, logically coherent system. Uh, it's one of, you know, right. it is often accused, virtual ethicists are often accused of being, you know, vague enough that a bunch of different uh, courses of action can fit under the virtual ethical banner. I don't see that as a criticism. I see that as an advantage. I see that as right. right that actually describes the situation right, exactly. as it is, right? Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, and Aristotle famously did not think you could have no. any more precision. Um, he has a whole methodological introduction in the Nicomachean Ethics talking about just what level of rig rigor one can accomplish in, in a science like the moral right. sciences. And he says it's relatively limited um, because so much of it is determined by um, features of local right. contexts. Um, and actually, this is, provides me with an opportunity just to, to sort of push a little bit on the idea of objectivity. See, I don't see object, uh, I don't see objectivism as necessarily inconsistent. Moral objectivism is necessarily inconsistent with uh, a certain kind of relativism, no. right. right? Because in my right. view, Aristotle's conception of a virtue yeah. is both objective and relative in the following sense. So, um, in a certain set of circumstances. 
um, my rushing a group of people with a gun would be courageous, right? right? So if, if the circumstances that we're in a just war and there's some decent chance of success right. um, and and we're fighting for the right reason and all of that, you, you stipulate all of those aspects of the context and then my running at these people with a gun is courageous. Right. If you change the context... It could be not only not courageous, but it could be the opposite. It could be Correct. rash or crazy or insane. You know, if, if the context isn't a war, but instead I'm 13 years old and it's my junior high school cafeteria, then it's not a courageous right. act, right? And so in that sense, um, uh, virtues are relative, yeah. right? At least they're relative to the features of the context, but that doesn't make them um, unobjective. Once the features of the context yeah. are set, Something certainly counts as courageous, and something else counts as cowardly, and something else counts Absolutely. as Absolutely. Um, and again, this kind of flexibility, which I, f I think is an advantage of, advantage of rhetorics, is much more difficult to get out of you know, a more formal system like, let's say, Kantian deontology. I mean, that's why Kant famously gets in trouble immediately, you know, as soon as it's off the game. Yeah, you can't, you can't right. with Kant, because Kant thinks the context has to Correct. be irrelevant. Because he wants these moral statements to be, to be universal. That's right. That's how you know right, Kant right. famously right. said that you know lying is always is always wrong thing to do. Well, right. <laughs> there's, there's a there's a right. college industry of counterexamples that now even introductory right. you know uh, philosophy students and the graduate students can can right. can uh, can mention about well, but what about the Nazi that knocks at your door and asks you if you're hiding right. the, the you know the Jew in the basement? You know, would you lie in that sense? Right. Well, right. Yeah, of course I would. Um, right, right. So, but to be fair to Kant, Kant himself, however, is responding to a different set of intuitions, and that is, for example, that the idea that one of the things that distinguishes moral obligations from other kinds of obligations we operate under is that moral obliga obligations have a much wider scope, have a maximal scope. They apply to all rational beings as opposed to just members of a certain right. club or members of a certain tribe or whatever and ever. And so, in other words, I, I think that the larger point is that you know that you were saying before is that, you know, each, each of these has a piece of the truth because each of these theories is focusing on one aspect of our priest's theoretical sense of moral intuitions. But when you put them all together, they're, they're incoherent. Yeah. Um, um, and, and so I do, I, I agree with you that of all these theories, Aristotle's is the best because it doesn't, it doesn't even exactly. try to give a single exactly. account that focuses on one feature, or a small handful of features. Um, so let me ask you now, uh, just um, with an eye on, eye on right. time, um, let, me, let me ask you now, it seems to me that the reason why people want to be moral realists is because they're worried about normativity, right? right? And so it, it seems to me that the idea is something like this. Um, so when we talk about a statement being normative, we mean that it implies an ought, Correct. right? Um, and that, um, And therefore, because it applies an ought, it has a certain force, right? It has, it has a certain force on the person to whom it's right. directed. And um, I think that the, the reason why people insist on being moral realists, um, and I've heard this um, from the theistic side, I mean, this is one of William Lane Craig's favorite oh, uh, yes. arguments, is that without, without, um, without God and thus a morally realist framework behind it, there aren't any objective moral, any objective moral uh, right. truths. Um, I th and I think this is why it's important to disambiguate moral realism from moral objectivism, because I suspect what you're going to say is that we can get this normativity out of objectivism. You don't need 
the moral realism to get the the normativity. Is that uh, what you're going to say that moral objectivism is sufficient? Absolutely, you read my mind. Um, yes. So again, going back to our analogy with chess, right? Um, we get objectivity out of the rules of chess, um, and if we agree on the rules, there the statements there are certain statements that objectively and absolutely follow, and there's re really very little room for discussion. Now yeah. that's it. It sounds to me like uh, Craig hasn't read or hasn't. Well, I'm sure he's, he's read it, but he hasn't thought about uh, Eutyphro's dilemma, because that I, that idea that that gods are guarantors of moral uh, realism is actually in in my mind has been dead in the waters for 2,400 years because yeah. of Plato. Yeah. But you know that's an inter a different discussion. <laughs> We're not going to have yeah. that. Yeah. But I think the general point that you make is in fact correct. Once you decouple realism from objectivism. Then you can set, you can see how certain you can retain the latter, you can retain objectivism without actually having to commit yourself to uh, uh, a particular metaphysical position. That's one of the advantages of anti-realism in general, right? Um, that is yeah. that it, it reduces the metaphysical baggage uh, because the metaphysical baggage does come at a, at a price because somebody then is going to obviously ask you the question: Well, um, how do you account for a that that uh, that ontological statement? That you're making, and B, how do you account for how we can access uh, those kind of right. those kind of truths? And right. and how do you just how do you distinguish the correct ones from yeah. the incorrect ones? And you know, if we have rival uh, God God frameworks, how do you determine which one is the right one? And, and that all that sort of thing. Um, but let me just push you a little bit because it seems to me that there is, I, I'm a little more sympathetic to at least someone like Craig's motivation. And so here's where, here's where I would push a little bit. So yes, I agree with you 100%. Once we accept the framework of chess, there are things you ought to do and things you ought not to do. I want to keep the language of obligation right. here, right? And, 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 and those are objective, right. right? But of course, I can simply say, I don't want to play right. chess, right? And otherwise, I can, in a sense, eschew the entire framework and refuse right. to play. And I think that what someone like Craig is is worried about is that, look, yes, maybe you can say within a certain framework, these things are moral obligations. Right. But what then do we say to the person who simply refuses to yeah. play? Right. If we're going to treat moral, if we're going to treat morals as a, as a, as a language game, let's go. Let's, let's go. go there, right? Sure. Um, that's right. <laughs> since I have to mention them right. at least once every every right. conversation. If we're going to treat morality as a language right. game. Why can't somebody simply say, what do we say to the person if somebody says, I refuse to play? And so in that, in that circumstance, the obligations don't apply right. to me <coughs> because I'm not playing, I'm not, I'm not within right. the frame. So, so there's two answers to that, I think. One is the flippant one, so I'm going to give you that one first. Uh, okay, you refuse okay, to, to play, I'm, I'm going to declare you're a psychopath and I'm going to you know, put your, you know, put your uh, lock you away. Uh, in other words, society is about certain rules that we agree on or that we constantly negotiate, right? I mean, you can, you can make the same argument for right. law, for instance, right? You could say, well, I didn't right. sign up on all these laws that people are, 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 are uh, you know, putting under the books and therefore I consider myself... Um, uh, outside and I, I'm not going to follow them. And some people actually in the United States, for instance, do make their reasoning, uh, uh, you know, deploy their, re let's call it reasoning, um, uh, as far as, for instance, you know, pay, paying or not paying taxes concerned, right? They, they're convinced, the interpretation of the law is that the Constitution, that, it, that ta taxing people is unconstitutional. So regardless of what the Supreme right. Court says, they're not going to pay taxes. What does the federal government do? They go after them. Right, they go after them. So, so that's the the flippant, uh, you know, answer, which actually I think but, has some truth, you know, some level of truth in there. It's true, but notice it's not a no, moral answer. In other words, in other words, the reason why I ought to play the moral right. game 
is not itself a moral no. reason, right? I have, in other words, if the moral obligation is defined within the frame right. of the game, then you can't say I'm morally obligated to That's play right. the game. And so ultimately then, it sounds to me then, like normativity, moral normativity is ultimately grounded in the in, in violence, right? Or in a kind of social violence, right? Right. Well, yeah, if, sure. If you want to put it that way, yes. That's in, that's in answer to my first question. Now, that, that's right, the that's an answer, answer. Right? So what's the, what's right. the non-flipping The non-flipping answer. answer, I mean, you might not like it any, anymore, actually, um, but or, or Craig might not like it anymore. But nonetheless, here's the best I can do. So... Um, I want to switch now back from the analogy between ethics and sort of chess, uh, which has that, you know, all analogies have limitations. Let's, let's keep that in mind. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that it's got exactly the limitations you're talking about uh, to, to an analogy, uh, a better analogy, I think between let's say ethics and geometry. Right. Okay. Again, keeping in mind, of course, that it is only an analogy and therefore it, it has its own limitations. So in the case of geometry, let's say that we say, well, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to use, uh, Euclidean geometry, so to navigate uh, uh, local space on here on Earth, and we're going to switch to uh, you know spherical geometry if we're going to navigate throughout the solar system. Now you could say, well, I, those are arbitrary. There is an infinite number of geometries out there, and I refuse to play those two particular games. I'm going to come up and you know with a you know hypergeometrical you know <laughs> theory whatever, and I'm going to play that game. Um, I can say, well. Yeah, but if you're playing that game, that other game that you just invented, it's just not going to work very well. Because on Earth, as it turns out, even though there is an infinite number of geometrical systems you could, you could uh, actually use, for most practical purposes, uh, Euclidean geometry works very well. And therefore, on pragmatic grounds, you really are better off using that one. But if you switch to you know, interplanetary travel, then Euclidean geometry, for, every, for, for equally objective reasons, uh, does not work very well. And so you need to switch to, uh, to uh, spherical geometry. Um, so what that means is that essentially you're coming up with a naturalistic constraint. I don't want to say grounding necessarily, uh, because that sounds like, like a little too one-to-one -on -one relationship. But I do think that there are naturalistic constraints. I mean, as you know, we were talking earlier about human nature as a naturalistic constraint, right? right? Um, there are naturalistic constraints that simply make it so that certain approaches to ethics are better than others. Um, now, do, that, do those naturalistic constraints narrow down things so that you can say, well, there is only one ethical system that's going to work? No, I don't think so. But do they operate in such a way that they can in some way inform the idea that one must play the ethics language game. See, in the case of geometry, you have, a, you have appeal to a sort of a, at least a relatively clear notion of a reality that constrains what are the practical choices amongst the frame, the frameworks, right? But if you don't want to appeal to some sort of moral reality, but you want to appeal to human nature, can you in a sense use human nature the same way to say, look, um, you really can't opt out of the ethics yeah. game. It's not because you have an ethical obligation to play the ethics game, because of course that begs right. the question. But um, this is that where sort of the idea of the evolutionary roots of ethics are going to provide a naturalistic constraint that, in a sense, we can't to a certain extent avoid the ethics game. Um, yeah. So that's a good. That's an interesting point. Uh, now the this uh, uh, this sound in the background, which. May, people may or may not hear. It's going to be it's distracting. Excellent. So great. So ignore it. <laughs> it just passed. Um, 
so so here's another way then 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 to put the, to put the issue. Um, I do think that the constraints are real. As I said, you know, I, I do think that that there is such a thing as as a uh, non-arbitrary uh, human nature. But but let let's go even way further uh, and and say uh, talk about the laws of physics. Um, one could say, look, if there is anything that is constraining on people's behaviors are the laws of physics. You really ought to respect, right. let's say, gravity, right? Right. But of course, that's not true. Meaning that you could jump out of the window of the 15th floor of a building thinking that you're going to fly. You, you could try to yeah. violate the laws of <laughs> physics, right? Uh, of course, you're going to be right. and end up splashed on the, on the ground and the consequences are not going to be particularly good. Um, but even the laws of physics are not binding in that way. That Meaning there's, there's no ought there either, right? It's like, yeah, yeah I don't believe in gravity. I'm going to jump. Um, what you're going to face are simply consequences, pretty dire consequences, I would say. But you're going to face those consequences. Your behavior is still really not constrained, even by the laws of physics. And if your behavior is not constrained by the laws of physics, I don't see why anybody would want um, uh, to claim that that logic has to constrain uh, some somebody's behavior, or you know, coherence has to be a constrained behavior. It doesn't have so the normative the, the normative force. Um, I don't think is uh, to be understood as, you know, you have no choice but to do this. It has to be construed, it can only be construed as a condition. If you want to live in a uh, reasonably flourishing society where, you know, basic tenets of human nature uh, and culture are respected and so on and so forth, then you have to do this kind of thing. If you don't, then you're going to build yeah. another society and good luck with that. It sounds to me then that you are saying to a certain extent that... Um, the social the the evolved social reality of human nature does create a kind of constraint like the laws of gravity in physics right. um that in a sense they don't really compel you to play the ethics game or the physics game the gravity game but they do in a sense uh make the consequences of not playing it um, uh, intolerable, yeah. right? I mean, they, they make the, they make the kind, and I think, I actually think this is really important because I think one of the things that people don't think about enough in ethics, people use the word normative all the time, and people say that that ethical obligations have normal force, they're over, more normative force, that they're overriding of other considerations, but I've never ever heard anybody really explain very clearly where that normative force right, comes exactly. from. What what does it actually consist exactly. of? Um, 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 somebody says to you, you ought to do X. And even if they can give you a Kantian proof for why you ought to do X, um, where does the actual force yeah. come from? Why why can't a person simply say, "I don't care about be I don't care about being ethical. I exactly. refuse." And I think that I think that part of the mistake that people like Craig make um, is that I think they think that somehow the force is self-contained yeah. within the obligation. Yeah. And if you simply show that the obligation is based in a reality, that the force, the efficacy. Of the of the normative of the of the norm of the of, of the uh, moral claim uh, is just sort of automatic, and I think in that sense they're looking for something that that there is never no. going to be the 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 normative the normative force ultimately always is some sort of practical sense correct and right? in fact 
always lies. That's in some right. And in fact, even Craig, who thinks that he can find it in God, as that's why I mentioned Euthyphro's dilemma before, right? I mean, yeah, that, he's yeah, going to impale yeah. himself on one of the two horns of the dilemma, because if we're going to say that the normativity comes out of the will of God, you're still saying, for all effective right. purposes, that it comes out of violence or the or the threat of right. violence. You know, you're saying, well, I'm doing yeah. this thing because otherwise I'm going to go to hell. All right. If that's right. not violence, I don't know what is. <laughs> right. uh, that's right. in fact, in some sense, that's the ultimate violent, uh, violent threat, right? Yeah. Uh, eternal punishment. Yeah. yeah. So even even Craig does not get out of it, and he cannot get out of it. Uh, there's just no logical way to get out of it. So to me, yeah, I, I always interpret, uh, you know, um, ought statements in terms of conditionals. If Exactly. Hypothetical it's imperatives, imperatives as Kant called, yeah. called them. Yeah. Exactly. If you want to live in this kind of society, if you want to flourish as a human being, etc., 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 then this this seems like a reasonable course of action. Uh, if you don't care, go ahead. Uh, you know, go on a deserted island and do whatever the hell you want. Uh, but we don't want you in this right. society. Right. Right. And so the 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 sort of the ground level moral statements um, may have at least superficially the form of a categorical right. imperative, right? We don't say you ought not murder somebody unless you want unless you don't care about going to jail. <laughs> right. But ultimately the force that the obligation has, the force that the that the that the moral uh, uh, obligation statement carries is ultimately due to a hypothetical imperative that if you want to sort of as you said participate in a be be a social animal and live with other people and be then you'd better then you'd better play the, the ethical language game, which includes doing things like obeying these superficially categorical statements like don't murder exactly. and don't and exactly. right, right. you want to be a member um, of a particular club, then you better play by the rules of the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and so I guess the idea is that, well, normativity is ultimately what motivates the desire for moral yes. realism. Um, but we realize now that, A, moral realism doesn't give right. it to you. Uh, and B, what what you can get, you can you can get simply out of moral objectivism. Yes. Um, but that at the end of the day, we we both I think agree that um, ultimately the the sanction that these obligate that these moral statements carry is that ultimately at some level to disobey them carries some practical sanction to it. There, there, there's nothing inherently forceful about these these sorts of statements, as I think people like uh, Craig and maybe yes. other. Uh, robust moral realists think That's that right. there are. That's, right. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, well, I think we did a good job with this, despite <laughs> the fact that we um, uh, had a lot of interruptions. And I'm hoping the blogging heads people can splice it together in a way that uh, makes so sense. That's right. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> but um, but I greatly appreciate once again uh, some excellent conversation. It was a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you, you very much. See you soon. All right, stopping now.